2. If you look closely at the notes, they may look a little familiar. As you recall, last time we tried to tackle this passage, I only got to my first point. I assure you I'll at least get to the second one today. Um, no, I should. God willing, we should get through all of this. All of this. But I would like to begin our time by reading in full again Luke chapter 2, 21 to 44. And the reason we're treating it as a unit is because Luke sets it apart as a unit. Uh, there's, a, there's a style of writing or of, of literary structure called ellipsis where you use one topic to introduce the chunk and then use the same topic to end the chunk. And Luke does that twice at the end of this chapter. Here, if you look at verses uh, 21 through 24, it talks about the parents going up according to the law to do what the law required. And then in verse 39, they were turned after performing everything according to the law of the Lord. That makes this a unit in the same way that the next section in verse 40 and 52 both center on the theme of Jesus growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God. And so we know that's a unit. So we'll read Luke chapter 2, 21 to 40. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and the parents Brought in, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do according to the law, the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword shall pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town in Nazareth. This is one of the less well-known Christmas stories. We talked about this last time we were here, that Luke gives us some of the most insight into the childhood of Jesus, and everyone's familiar with the, the birth in the manger, and everyone's familiar with the first half of Luke chapter 2, and the shepherds and the angels appear and they go, and everyone knows about the the wise men, we don't know how many wise men there were. They had three gifts. Um, but this one generally gets left down. I think probably because we don't know what to make of it. 
probably because we don't understand it, and it just seems kind of strange. The parents go up to do some legal law thing to the temple, and while they're there, God picks up their baby, and that's okay, and then he starts prophesying and, and blessing God and blessing them, and, and an old widowed prophetess comes and starts rejoicing, and, and so it generally doesn't make most of the Christmas pageants, most of the Christmas pictures. It should. Luke's put it here for a purpose. Now remember, Luke's purpose in writing, if you go all the way back to Luke chapter 1, he's writing to Theophilus, putting an orderly account together that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so Luke gives us the entire first two chapters, given not just the birth stories of Jesus and John the Baptist, but the birth announcements of Jesus and John the Baptist, then the birth stories of Jesus and John the Baptist, then the evident community coming together and rejoicing. We saw that with Zechariah's family and with the shepherds as they left, depart, declaring the glory of God and what they'd seen. And one of Luke's major points in doing this is to establish the authority, the credulity the authenticity of this Messiah and of this final Old Testament prophet who would point to him. And we've seen again and again and again the miraculous circumstances, the prophetic pedigree, the, that they are well in Old Testament traditions. These, these, these are not men simply claiming to be something, but again and again and again God testified through signs, through miracles, through angels these, these people should be listened to. And of course, the, the logic of that is if you listen to John the Baptist, what does John the Baptist do? He just points to Jesus. And then Jesus, he is the very word of God, and the rest of this gospel will focus on him nearly entirely. And so when we get to this, this account of, of Jesus' parents going up to the temple, I argued last time that because of that ellipsis, because the story starts and ends with the parents going up, it's really to be understood that that's what's going on. That's the context in which to understand Simeon and Anna's prophetic witness. The parents are being faithful to observe the law. At eight, at eight days, Jesus was circumcised and named, given the name Jesus. Yahweh saves. And then, 40 days after the birth, Mary and Joseph and 40-day-old baby Jesus, come up to the temple for two things. The first was for purification for Mary. And Mary brings a sin offering. And we talked last time about how let there be no nonsense about the sinlessness of Mary. Mary herself brings a sin offering. You can go read about it in Leviticus. The, the notes are there. We talked about it two weeks ago. Mary's, those two turtle doves that Mary are bringing, according to Leviticus, are to atone for her sin as a sin offering. Mary says, in effect, I need atonement. I need my sins removed. I need to obey the law, bring the turtle doves, and have my sins ceremonially cleansed. There's a second reason they're coming to the temple, and that was to redeem Jesus. To redeem Jesus. Luke also quotes Exodus 13. And in Exodus 13, we saw how after Israel had left Egypt, God instituted at the same time two institutions two things for them to observe. The first, we're all well aware of, Passover. That just as that one fateful night, the angel of the Lord went throughout all of Egypt and struck down the firstborn, whether it be of man or beast, and only those who had the, the blood of the lamb on their, of their doorpost were spared, so God wanted them to remember in a memorial meal that passing over of sin. It's a vivid picture of the gospel. You're reminded, I, I deserve to die. You, you deserve to die. And without some sort of redemption, without blood being shed on my behalf, 
I will die, and I need the, the lamb that God supplies. And so year after year, they bring a lamb into their home, and year after year, they slaughter it. And, and they remember that God passed over. But at the exact same time, God also institutes in, in Exodus 13 that as another way of remembering their sinfulness and remembering their debt to him, that they, all the firstborn of the womb, these firstborn who God spared, they had to buy back. They had to redeem. That's actually the language of Exodus 13 that Luke quotes. They had to redeem them. And so Jesus, being Mary's firstborn, needed to be redeemed. And we talked about the irony that here is the Redeemer being redeemed. Here is God's Passover lamb, according to 1 Corinthians 5, participating in these, in these things. And I argued that I think the reason why that frames this is lest anyone mistake that Jesus himself is a sinner. I mean, Jesus is being presented and redeemed and bought back from God, the, sim- the symbolism being that this is a sinful child who deserves punishment, and we're going we're to buy him back from the Lord. We're going to redeem him from the Lord. Well, Jesus isn't a sinful child. And so at this event, and just as, just as God ordained in chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized, receiving a baptism of repentance, lest anyone misunderstand, lest anyone get the wrong idea, you can imagine partway through Jesus' you know, ministry claiming to be sinless, somebody saying, yeah, well, I saw you receive a baptism of repentance under John the Baptist. You repented of your sins, Jesus, and you were baptized. Well, God spoke at Jesus' baptism, didn't he? Saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Removing any doubt that whatever Jesus is doing, it's not because he's displeased God. It's not because he's a sinner. Jesus' baptism means something else. God settles that issue, lest there be any confusion. In reality, Jesus is living the life that you and I needed to live, and since you and I would have needed that baptism, Jesus receives that baptism. In another gospel in Matthew, when John asks him, Lord, shouldn't you be baptizing me? Jesus says, no, permit it that all righteousness might be fulfilled. He's, he's not only going to die for our sins on the cross, but he's going to provide for us a righteousness of perfect law-keeping for his entire life. This is why Jesus couldn't simply come down to earth, you know, Friday morning before the crucifixion. But he lives a sinless life, observing the law perfectly. We see and hear in detail his parents, how they observed the law Well, in the same way, when Jesus is being redeemed, God ordains to raise up a prophetic witness through Simeon and Anna. And so we're going to dive in, picking it up at point number two, where we left off two weeks ago, and we will dive into Simeon's spirit-filled blessing, verses 25 to 35. Now, what's interesting is we don't know very much about Simeon. We don't know if he was a priest. We don't know if he's a carpenter. We don't know much about him. We know about his character. One of the things you want to pay attention to when you're reading the Bible is what details the author gives you, because they're important. You guys know the the TV show Jeopardy, right? And Jeopardy gives you the answer, and you've got to come up with a question. When the Bible gives us details, what we should be thinking is, what questions should we be asking? Why is this important? We don't know anything. We're going to know stuff about Anna. We're going to know about her lineage. Simeon, we know about his character. So who is this guy? Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name is Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. So who do we have here? We have a righteous man. Now, we've already talked about this because people in Luke's gospel have already been called righteous. Zechariah and Elizabeth are called righteous. And we know that Luke doesn't mean that in an absolute legal sense because Zechariah, who is called righteous, doesn't believe the angel and gets punished. 
So when Luke's calling them righteous, he's not saying sinless. Rather, he means people who are justified, people who are righteous in God's sight through faith. These are, to use our nomenclature, saved people, people of faith, people of the covenant. And Simeon is, is a believer in God's revelation. Simeon's sins have been removed. Simeon is at peace with God. He's righteous. But not only is he righteous, he's devout. He is faithful in the things God's given him to do. He's faithful in observing the law. He's faithful in worshiping God. He's righteous. He's devout. Thirdly, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. What's that? That's a reference. You can turn there, if you want, to Isaiah 60. And if you listen to Handel's Messiah, you, you may... No, sorry, Isaiah 40. You may know from Handel's Messiah, you might recognize these words, comfort, comfort, which we get the word consolation from. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. What's, what's Simeon awaiting? He's awaiting the redemption of the Lord. He's waiting the salvation of the Lord. He's read his Bible. He knows the Messiah is to come. He knows the Lord is going to send one who, according to Isaiah 53, would bear the sins of many, who would be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He's awaiting this coming one. He's awaiting the consolation of Israel. In, in short point of fact, this is a righteous, faithful, gospel-hoping-for Israelite. He's believing God's word. He's devout in the things God's called him to do. And he has fixed his hope, just as we should fix our hope on Jesus. He doesn't know it's Jesus, but he's fixed his hope. He's waiting for the one who is to come, the consolation of Israel. And this man, um, in an unusual sense, is filled with the Spirit. In the New Covenant, this is one of the distinctions of the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, every believer receives the promise of the Holy Spirit. But that was not so under the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for ministry. And so the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, and the Holy Spirit departed from Saul. And the Holy Spirit would come upon the craftsmen to make the, the tools for the tabernacle, and the Holy Spirit would depart from them. And the Holy Spirit would come upon David, and the Holy Spirit was given for ministry. It was not a sign or a seal of salvation. And yet this man, the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, again, there's all sorts of interesting things. How was that revealed to him? I don't know. But somehow, the Holy Spirit had communicated to Simeon this promise. Simeon, you will not die. It's just a wonderful promise from God. Simeon, you will not die until the thing that you are hoping for you have seen. Simeon's awaiting the consolation of Israel. And God reveals to him through his spirit and his kindness and his grace, Simeon, you will not see death until you see my salvation. We can infer from this, perhaps, that Simeon's old. We don't know. Probably was older in years. Um, but we can't even be certain of that. What we know about is his character. He's got this promise from God. He's filled with the Spirit. And then moved by the Spirit, he came, verse 27, in the Spirit, into the temple, which is to say the Spirit directed him there. And so the Spirit's leading him into the temple, and he just happens to meet Joseph and Mary, bringing their child to present him to the Lord, to redeem him. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. 
You can imagine maybe Joseph and Mary's initial shock. Stranger walks up, picks up the baby, but then he begins blessing God, and it quickly becomes apparent to them, this, this man's a prophet. This man is speaking by the Spirit. And he gives two blessings. You can see that in verse 28. He took him up in his arms and blessed God, and then in verse 34, and Simeon blessed them. And so we're going to look at what Simeon says in those two points. And what's, what's interesting about them is in the first, we get sort of the broad overview of the Messianic mission. Simeon, with this child in his arms, is going to interpret, as it were, the purpose, the ministry, the function of this child. Who is this baby in his arms? He's going to make that clear. And again and again and again in Luke's gospel, we've been getting more and more information about who this Jesus is. And Simeon's going to speak broadly and universally in his first utterance, and then more narrowly in his second. So who is this child? Well, first, before he blesses the child, he blesses God. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. So again, I, I tend to think he was an older man. Um, it seems more natural for an older man to say, now you let your servant depart in peace than for a young guy. Um, so I think that's probably right. And here he is receiving the promise that God gave to him, and he responds by praising God. God has given him the desire of his heart. Not only does he see the Messiah, not only does he see God's salvation, he gets to hold God's salvation in his arms. This weak, in many respects, powerless baby will save him. And he knows it. And he marvels, praising God. And he declares that Jesus, this baby, would have sort of two functions, one to Israel and one to the Gentiles. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, verse 32, and for glory to your people Israel. So what, what's the purpose of this baby, this Messiah? Well, he's the Savior. We already get that. He's seen his salvation. I've seen, you finally let me see in your salvation. This is the one who would accomplish God's salvation. But more to the point, this is the one who will bring a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Now, how does that work? Well, as Paul says in Romans, it was really only to the Jews that God revealed himself verbally, linguistically. Now, God has revealed himself to all peoples everywhere through the created order. Paul says that in Romans 1. So the creation is, is declaring, declaring, declaring God's greatness. So everybody knows God exists. No one has an excuse for the knowledge of God. But creation doesn't tell you he has a son. Creation doesn't tell you about the Savior. Creation doesn't tell you about Jesus. Likewise, our conscience convicts us and alternately accuses and excuses us of our deeds. And, and so we know that judgment is coming, and we know that there's right and wrong. But again, we, we, we don't know about salvation through those things. Only to the Jews did God give verbal propositions of truth that he give the Scriptures. And so the Gentiles really are in darkness. Israel is meant to be a light. Israel is meant to attract people. They're meant to, again, be a nation of priests mediating this knowledge of God to the nations. And, and the nations were welcome to come. And we see in the Bible proselytes. So Rahab the, 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 pros, Rahab the prostitute becomes an Israelite. And we see Ruth the Moabitess becomes an Israelite. And you were welcome to come in, but you had to come to Israel. The old, the old covenant was a come-see religion. Come-see. Come-see Solomon's temple. Come-see the riches. Come-see the scriptures come and see but by contrast the new covenant is a ministry of go and tell go and tell go and tell and jesus in his coming and this has got to be remarkable for jews they're in, they're in jerusalem they're in the temple they're in the cultic center center of worship um, 
where the religious practices take place. And in that setting, before he even mentions Israel, Simeon says, this, this Messiah is holding his arms to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Think about that. It was through Jesus and through the new covenant that he purchases, the gospel freely goes out to all nations and all peoples. So you and I don't need to travel to Jerusalem. You and I don't need to follow Mosaic ceremonies to, be, to become right with God. It's through Jesus that this revelation, this light of knowledge of God is going to the Gentiles. And so Simeon hits on that note, which is huge. Probably about the first time in Luke's gospel this is even mentioned. And we accept this so much for granted now, but at this time, Judaism is so ethnocentric. This, this must have been a revelation. When, when, when Joseph and Mary marvel in a few seconds, I think it probably has more to do with this statement than the next. This is the one who finally would break beyond those ethnic barriers and the gospel would freely go out to all peoples. He came as a light for revelation to the Gentiles. I think probably making an allusion to Isaiah 9-2, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of darkness, on them has light shone. Or Malachi 2, talking about the coming John the Baptist. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings and you shall go out like calves from the stall. Leaping, or, or just think of John's gospel, how John introduces Jesus to us. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or a little later in John's gospel, when Jesus stands up during the Feast of Booths and says, I am the light of the world. Not just the light of Israel, I'm the light of the world. Here is a savior for all men. Here is a light for all people. Well, secondly, he's a light for glory for Israel. And again, the distinction here is Israel should know. Israel should know what's going on. Simeon here does. Granted, he's getting some help from the Holy Spirit, but he's been reading his Bible. And, he, and, and so here the notion is less of information, more of glory. And remember, God's glory and light are tied together. God's glory is his, his chavod, it's his weight, it's his heaviness, it's his seriousness. And, and throughout the Old Testament, light and glory are intermixed regularly. Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 3. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Do you see how light and glory are interchangeable there? Your light has come, the glory has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and the nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Or Israel was, was, was under the thumb of yet another pagan nation, right? That started with Babylon, Medo-Persians, the Assyrians, Greeks, sort of, and then the Romans, one after another. And then they looked back to the glory days when they were a sovereign and independent nation under kings like David and Solomon. When the ark was captured, I don't know if you remember this, if you're going through the Samuel Bible studies, you, you probably will pick up on this, but when the ark was captured, Phineas' wife was in labor. She heard of it, and she named the child that she was born Ichabod, the glory of has departed, right? The glory of God was departed. The, the ark was captured. Ichavod, Ichabod. And here, this hope, this restoration, 
this redemption, this consolation of Israel. This child would come to bring light and glory to Israel. Light and glory to Israel. Now, that's the broad messianic themes. Who is this baby? This is the baby who's going to bring the light of the knowledge of God, the night of revelation of God to all peoples, to the nations. And this is the baby who would bring a light of reclaimed glory, reclaimed um, majesty to the nation of Israel. That's who this child is in broad terms. That's his first prophecy. He has a second. First, he blesses God, and then in verse, his mother and father marvel at this, and again, I think probably the announcement of the inclusion of the Gentiles probably was the most remarkable thing he said, although they both were remarkable. But then he blesses them. In verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, and here we get the narrower focus, get the broad, who is this? The Savior of the world, the glory of Israel. Now we see here is the one who will divide men. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the, rising and fall, for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Four points. First, we see the child will divide men. You'd think from the first declaration that everyone's just going to love this baby. I mean, who doesn't want to know God? Who doesn't want a light of revelation to God? Well, I'll tell you who doesn't. People who love their sin. People who love their sin don't want light shining on them. The darkness hates the light. People who, who have no desire or intention of being reconciled with God don't want to add culpability and responsibility. They want to leave me my ignorance, please. And for a glory to Israel? Well, just what type of glory are you offering? If Jesus were offering a military glory, there were many in his day who would have readily accepted that. They wanted to make him king at one point. Just go beat up the Romans, Jesus. The glory Jesus was offering them was the different glory. Oh, he will return and establish the kingdom, and he will rule from David's throne, and Israel will return to its glory. But first and foremost, Jesus was a savior from a sin, not a political savior, and the glory he offered was the glory of God and knowing God. Not everyone was interested in that. And so we learn the child will divide men. The rising and fall of many. First Peter says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. This child will divide people. And that's, and that's one of the things we got to understand. Sometimes we want to so make over the gospel and so make over Jesus and make him so nice and lovable that just everyone will want to run up and hug him. If it's the real and authentic Jesus we're presenting, there is a sense in which the world should love and hate him. There's a sense in which the world should love and hate him. In our culture, we love Jesus' turn the other cheek, love your neighbor. Culture, not such a big fan of Jesus' sex ethic and view of marriage. Now you go over to the Middle East, they're right on board with Jesus' sex ethic and view of marriage. It's the turning the other cheek. And in an honor culture, that doesn't fly so well. There'll always be things about Jesus that attract and repel. There should always be things that, that do that. So 
Simeon gives us the broad, he's a light for the Gentiles, he's a glory for Israel, but make no mistake, he will divide people. When he comes, people will fall and people will rise. He will divide people. He will be controversial. We, we can't escape that. And his gospel will be controversial. Now, we don't need to add to its offense, but neither does God need PR people to smooth over the offense. We just declare the gospel and let the truth sort itself out. We do it in love. But make no mistake, Jesus rightly articulated, Jesus rightly expressed, will both attract and offend people. And if he's not, you're doing something wrong. He will divide people. Second, he will be opposed. The child will be opposed. The child is appointed for the rising and fall of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Now, Jesus, for a while, things will look good. The crowds will come, flock to him in the thousands. But at the end of the day, what's Israel's final corporate answer? Crucify him. Does Israel corporately receive their Messiah? The decisive answer, no. He is opposed. Or as John said, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. As wonderful as this child is, as wonderful as his mission is for all the nations and for Israel, he will divide men, he will be opposed. I mean, just by the time we get to Luke 4, we're going to see it. The opposition beginning. And Jesus was clear about this as well. Verse Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. See, not only did Jesus come to be opposed, but he tells us in Matthew 10, whoever loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus makes it very clear. I, mean, I know it's painful, and I talk to people, when the gospel and Jesus has divided homes, when children are at enmity with the parents, when spouses are at enmity with each other over Jesus, it is painful. I mean, to walk with those people and love those people, we ought not to act surprised. I think sometimes you can buy into the, the prosperity light gospel. You know, the full-on prosperity gospel says you'll be healthy and you'll be rich. The prosperity light gospel says you'll just have a nice, relatively smooth life. The prosperity light gospel doesn't allow for children being set at odds against parents and conflicts in the family because of Jesus. Jesus acknowledged he'd be opposed and he acknowledged his followers would be opposed and for Mary, this is not starting out so great. I mean, the first prophecy was wonderful. Wonderful. The second one, yeah, this child's going to divide people. This child's going to be opposed. Then look, and I imagine right at her, it says, he said to them, and they said to Mary, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Whoa. What's that talking about? Well, what mother doesn't love her son? And yet, according to John... 1925, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And add to Mary's grief. I mean, just, just imagine that. Mary is going to see her son nailed to a tree and dying. But Mary came to know her son as her savior as well. Add to that, not just her own child, but her God, her savior, her Messiah. 
Yeah, a sword would pierce her soul. Which is to say, Mary, this child who will bring you so much joy will bring you sorrow. You will suffer because of this child. And again, I think there's a truism for believers. Jesus who promises you peace with God. Jesus who promises you unfettered access to the Holy of Holies will also bring sorrow and suffering for us as well. They, they, they come together, mixed together from a loving hand. The joy and the sorrow, the bitter and the sweet. And Mary, Simeon, is, is commenting on it. And again, notice the kindness of God. You might think, well, that's kind of a damper. I mean, she's just given birth. It's been 40 days. But God's even now getting her ready. How, how is Mary able to stand by at the foot of the cross? In part, because God graciously gave her words like these decades before. The child's point three would cause her great sorrow. The child would cause her great sorrow. And fourth, the child will expose the hearts of men. The child will expose the hearts of men. I think this really kind of sums up the whole thing of Jesus. What Jesus does is he's a fork in the road. He, he forces a decision. You can't remain ambivalent in the presence of Jesus. He won't, simply won't allow it. Nicodemus tries showing up with some nice religious platitudes. Teacher, we know you're from God because we've seen the signs you've done. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Pick a team, Nick. Pick a team. And Jesus again and again and again moves towards the confrontation, not away from it. He escalates. He doesn't de-escalate. So, so in John 5, when he heals a man on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are debating, he, he just could have come in and, and he could have just said, well, guys, you know, I, don't, I think it might be an overly strict reading of, of the Ten Commandments. It's not really work. It's not like this guy is making some extra money as a professional mat carrier. Um, come on, can you let it slide? And there'd be a good theological debate, and some people might get red in the face, but no one would be trying to kill Jesus. Instead, Jesus' answer to them, guys, my dad works on the Sabbath, so I work too. And they got it in the next verse. They were trying to kill him because he made himself equal with God. Again and again and again, Jesus does the un-Midwest thing. Instead of trying to smooth, you know, you know what I mean? We want to smooth, don't even pretend you don't know what I mean. Instead of trying to smooth things over, Jesus goes right for the point of disagreement. And we got to be careful. He's the Messiah, and he also is gentle, and he's also kind, and we also have John 4, right? So this isn't giving people carte blanche to go be Northeasterners. Um, <laughs> but again and again and again and again, Jesus exposes the disagreement. So in, in John 6, when he's got thousands of people following him, what's he start doing? He starts teaching on eating his flesh and drinking his blood till just about everyone goes home, including his disciples. And then he turns on them, and instead of saying, hey, good for you, he goes, hey, do you guys want to go home also? Because what Jesus is doing in every instance, he's revealing the state of people's hearts. He's revealing the state of people's hearts. And, and what you do with Jesus reveals where you're at with God. And that is the kindest thing he can do. He had thousands of people who didn't really love God, thousands of people who hadn't really repented of their sin, that they, they liked the free bread show. And the kindest thing he can do to them is to show them, guys, we're not playing for the same team. We're not, we're not on the same page. And he starts some hard teaching, and they go home. And at least now they know that them and Jesus aren't buddy-buddy. And that's the next necessary step if they're ever to come to saving faith. Jesus divides, he exposes the thoughts and intentions of the heart of men. 
And what you do with Jesus is what you do with God. And what you do with Jesus is what you do with his word. Listen to John 8, 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. And I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Which is to say, if what you do with Jesus shows what you do, where you're at with God. If you, if you love God, Jesus says you'll love me. If you love his word, you'll love me. So what you do with Jesus becomes the litmus test for where you're at with God. There is no room for, well, I love God. I'm a very spiritual person. What do you think of Jesus? I think he's a great moral teacher. You don't love God then. That, that won't work. That won't work. And again and again and again, as we unwrap the sort of you know, marketing Jesus, who always just, you know, he's smiling and he's got his robe on and he looks very Caucasian. Um, and we start getting into the Jesus of the New Testament, who flips over tables, who calls people on things, who can also be incredibly patient and merciful and kind. And as we start being exposed to the real Jesus, we find our culture is not such a big fan anymore. They like the Jesus from 2,000 yards with a halo on his head. They like that, that they're comfortable with that. When it's the real Jesus, he starts dividing and exposing the hearts of men. It's a remarkable prophecy on Simeon's part. The first one, the overview of his mission to bring a light of revelation to the Gentiles, to bring a light of glory to Israel. But in a matter of fact, in his ministry, he would divide men. He would be opposed. He would bring great, great sorrow to his mother. And he would expose the hearts of men. I, I think in many senses, those things are still true of him today. And with that, Simeon moves off the stage of Scripture. We don't know anything else about him. Church history has some theories. That's it. He rises up and he blesses God. In the context of Jesus being redeemed, Jesus being presented, Jesus being bought back, he holds him in his arms. This is God's salvation. This is the one who will bring the gospel, who will bring the knowledge of God to the nations. This is the one who will restore glory to Israel. This is also the one who will divide men. This, is, this little baby will be opposed. This little baby will break your heart, Mary. And this little baby will expose the hearts of men. And God also raised up a second witness, Anna the prophetess. In the few minutes we have remaining, let's, let's quickly look at her as well. Verse 36, there's a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So, so here, we actually are told her lineage. She's a prophetess. Now, that probably raises a question. I think all that means in this context, I won't, I won't get into this, is simply she's a teacher. She probably taught women um, or children. She's a teacher. Moses' sister, Miriam, is the first person mentioned as a prophetess. And she, she would speak. And teach God's truth. It's possible that under the, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, she might speak um, extemporaneously. But the, the point is, she was known to be a teacher and faithful with God's word. She was a faithful widow. And incredibly faithful. Considering that she probably got married in her mid-teens. And then lived for seven years with her husband. So she's in her early 20s. And from her early 20s until 84, she doesn't remarry. What does she do? She go travel the world. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. 
What a remarkable testimony. And again, just, just think of how long God might wait pe- make people wait before he answers their prayers. Remember God promised Abraham and Sarah a child. Did they get a baby next month? A long time goes by, many, many years. I wonder how long before Simeon's death he'd been promised he'd see God's salvation. Here, this woman who foregoes remarriage, which would have been perfectly legitimate and lawful under the law, commits herself to just worshiping God in the temple. It's similar to to Paul's requirement for widows on the widow's list. She who is, he writes in 1 Timothy 5, 5, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. And this woman has been faithful for the better part of 60 years, in all likelihood. 60 years of worshiping, praying, serving in the temple. And God honors that. Because in her 84th year, she went up to the temple. Well, she was in the temple, because of course she didn't leave there. And coming up at that very hour, she sees, I'm assuming she sees what's just happened. She doesn't pick up the child. But the assumption, I think, of the text is she's understood what has happened. This is him. This is the one. And she just begins rejoicing and giving thanks to God and speaking of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. We've seen her situation. She's an old widowed prophetess. We've seen her character. She's a faithful worshiper of God. That's the two things she and Simeon have in common, the devoutness, the faithfulness to worship. And again, if we'll be faithful with the small things, if we'll be faithful with, with like reading our Bibles with our families and prayer, I think those are the things God's looking at, is our faithfulness in, in, in what we'd call the small things, faithfulness in our devotion, faithfulness in our worship, faithfulness in our prayer, faithfulness in our Bible reading. He'll let him do the great things. But be faithful for a decade or two, or six. And it ends with this 84, I I, I wish I could see it, 84-year-old woman just starts rejoicing exuberantly, giving thanks to God and speaking of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. That redemption of Israel, I think, is a similar phrase to waiting for the consolation of Israel. They're waiting for the Messiah. And so this old, old widow becomes a rejoicing evangelist. That's the last blank, a rejoicing evangelist. And again, in every other instance, when God's done something, it ends with the word getting out, with words spreading. And Anna isn't just sharing this to everyone. She, somehow she apparently knows who are those people who are messianic, who are looking for God's Messiah. She's telling them. She's witnessing to them. And, and here we see the first instance of, of this baby revealing the hearts of men. And here is a right heart. Here is a good heart. And here is a right response to these things. This should be our response to these things. If the worship team would come up and get ready for our final song, we'll have a chance to respond to these things. You can either love and rejoice and delight in this child, or you can be bored, fall asleep, and want to get out of here as fast as you can. But for those of us who delight in this, we will follow Anna's pattern We will sing for joy. We will praise the Most High God as we sing the gospel song.